Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic. And as you can hear, we're back and I'm excited because we've got a clinical topic tonight, which is something we haven't done in a while. And I always like to touch on these because it's always good to stay fresh with uh, the content and the education that uh, keeps us up to date with what's going on out there. So we'll get to that in just a second. But before we can move forward, of course, we have to bring in Sam Bradley, who is the glue that holds this show together. So, hey, Sam, are, are you are you good old-fashioned wood glue or are you that fancy <laughs> instant super glue stuff? I try to be the super glue. There you go. That works. But- we're lucky, Jamie, because you and I are either side of this nasty storm coming in tomorrow. But Joe, he's kind of right in the red zone. What do you think, Joe? Uh, yeah, it looks like we're going to get it starting uh, late tonight and tomorrow. Be careful, because there's a lot, of, I gotta lot go. of tornado warnings. Yeah, I got a Kimberly's uh, flying in tonight. I got to go pick her up later this evening at the airport. So hopefully they'll oh. make it before the weather gets nasty. Yeah, I thought you'd already picked her up, but I guess I got that. Yeah, she's running behind. The flights are jacked up. Shocking. She, yeah, that's <laughs> a surprise. Well, I was watching a movie the other day about one of the larger Japanese earthquakes, and then, of course, followed by a tsunami. And it made me start thinking about all of the different things that could go along with that. So we'll talk about that. But um, COVID. I guess they're pulling the plug on the emergency response level of that. However, some people say COVID is just dead and sinking, but we know better, right, Joe? Yeah, I I have noticed that, you know, recently many of the uh, uh, sort of I don't know, monitoring uh, websites and that kind of stuff that used to publish statistics daily and all that kind of stuff have begun to back away a little bit. You know, the numbers are down pretty much everywhere. Although, interestingly enough, the uh, the, the Western Pacific uh, just since the beginning of this year has had a pretty good pretty good spike, but it seems to have settled down some now. So, I, I think that. Um, what we're going to see are, you know, small spikes of a particular variant that uh, aren't likely to go too far since uh, a majority of the folks in the world now have been exposed. As a matter of fact, I, I saw something on the WHO site a couple of days ago of 750 million cases of COVID and 6,750,000 deaths related to COVID. Um so hopefully this pandemic is about over. Well, we can only hope, but there's still a likelihood of more variants. Is it not true? Yeah, no question about that. Uh, you know, it could always sort of break out again. Most pandemics tend to do exactly as this one is done, which is, uh, you know, a, a variation occurs that is very infectious and makes people really sick and spreads very quickly and then sort of burns itself out after some period of time. It's just a matter of how many people are going to get sick and how many are going to die before that that cycle happens. Uh, now we're starting to see a lot of uh, uh, resistant uh, yeast-type organisms, which are common in secondary infections and in wounds, dirty wounds particularly, and that sort of stuff. 
We're beginning to see quite a few more of those that are uh, resistant to uh, treatment. We don't have a lot of great treatments for yeast infections in general. Um, and those can be quite aggressive and difficult to treat. I have a vaccine question, but Jamie has a question. Yeah, Joe, I'm just curious, um, you know, with regards to the COVID that um, I, I saw an article recently talking about the, the ongoing studies having to do with the long-term effects of COVID on some individuals who were infected. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about um, the ongoing process of finding out exactly what is going on there, because it seems like they affect a lot of different systems in the body uh, in, in different ways. Well, that's a great question, Jamie. Thanks. I, I meant to mention that earlier, and I completely forgot about it. Um, yeah, long COVID uh, has has really been uh, perplexing uh, and uh, devastating to a lot of people, uh, and it is not an uncommon uh, thing to have folks who have lingering symptomatology from you know, muscle aches and foggy thinking to really significant debilitating illness uh, that goes on and on and on with no really clear understanding of what's happening there. I think a lot of it is related to how the virus sort of turns on the immune system and results in uh, sort of an immune response uh, that it is far out of proportion and tends to be fairly indiscriminate in what it targets. And so it, it actually makes us sick as part of the uh, part of that disease. But uh, lots of research underway and um, a surprisingly large number of folks with persistent symptomatology. Ah, oh, that's terrible. I was listening to NPR, as I always do, and they were talking about they're going to use the, you try to use up the bivalent uh, immunization, the booster, just to give people another booster. But the downside of that is it may have a negative effect when they come up with a new one. Do you know about that? I don't know that it necessarily might have a negative effect. It, 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 it may not offer as much protection against a variant, uh, you know, much like the the flu vaccine in some ways, where it, it we sort of chase around the uh, the latest variant of the flu that seems to be out there in the wild, trying to stay ahead of it, and uh, we're seeing some of that with COVID as well. Um, but I I think it's uh, also part of trying to understand the the way that COVID works and how how and what it does to our inflammatory systems is uh, there's still a lot of work to be done there. Well, the other thing I heard, just to close this part out, was um, is they're cutting back a lot of services and you know, like free COVID tests and some, in some cases, free vaccines. And so the people that are still most vulnerable to, to this, uh, you know, older people and those with immunosuppressive issues, are not going to have access to this stuff. That seems a little troubling to me. 
Well, it's certainly concerning. I mean, I think there's still a, a role for testing, um, you know, even though it, it may not be uh, the severity of illness that we saw, you know, over the last two years. Uh, there's still a fair number of people in the population that are vulnerable, and uh, it it to them may be a severe infection. So the herd immunity idea uh, makes a lot of sense. If uh, if all those people that uh, someone who has a, a weakened immune system comes in contact with have either been vaccinated or already had the virus or both, uh, they are much less likely to pass the virus on to that person and uh, therefore they offer protection uh, to that person. So uh, I don't think it's going away. I think it's just sort of settling into a, a slow, steady roll now that that'll be uh, a lot like we uh, see with uh, influenza, where we still have a surprising number of deaths from that disease process as well. Uh, and, you know, vaccinations are still a part of that for appropriate folks. And there's still value in being able to diagnose specifically uh, the illness, whether it be influenza or COVID, because we have medications that help lessen symptoms and shorten the course of the disease. So uh, all of those things still need to remain in place, just not quite at the uh, high level that they uh, we saw them, you know, back six months ago. Any thoughts on that, Jamie? Well, I, I think, you know, we can't we can't continue to run at high and high emergency levels and and maintain states of emergency for extended periods of time. When you do that, the the meaning of what an emergency is loses loses its definition for the public, or at least a large number of the members of the public. Um, so I think there's something to be said for backing down on what some of the response is. But I, you know, then we fall back on, you know, the people who typically fall through the cracks in our U.S. healthcare system. Um, and so uh, those people were getting services under the emergency resources available and may not be getting those same resources under the under the return to normal and so i think that there's something to just be aware of um and you know joe joe knows well how that happens you know seeing people in the er on a regular basis i'm sure you're seeing some of that already start to occur yeah no question about it jamie and and you know i think another thing that we don't think much about is there were an awful lot of um, alterations, short-term changes, emergency plans and rules and regulations, et cetera, in, in an effort to get COVID under control. And that included everything to, from uh, the stuff you mentioned to uh, easing uh, limitations on ambulance uh, stuff, right? So obviously EMS is my thing. And uh, in my state, we had some rules in place that allowed uh, staffing of an ambulance to utilize a, a driver who had a, you know, a license to drive an emergency vehicle, but might not be a medical provider. Uh, and that allowed the small number of medical providers, obviously, just one in a truck now instead of two, um, you know, things like that are beginning to go away, too. So our staffing is going to come back to where it was pre-COVID. But 
Um, you know, I think for a lot of the public, they, they didn't even realize in many cases that uh, there was only one guy there who had EMS skills as opposed to the two that usually show up. Oh, that's interesting. All righty, let's talk about earthquakes. Um, when one happens, we weren't expecting it because they haven't yet found a way to let us know that one may be coming. I mean, having been there, living in California for most of my life, you, you can find it, kind of feel this rumble in the ground. And I've actually seen the street <laughs> undulate as it comes down the road, which is really weird. But obviously there's a lot of injuries from falls, from falling objects and that kind of thing. And that's where USAR comes in, right, Joe? And I know you've had a lot of experience with digging people out of places after it. Yeah, I mean, that, that was really the, the birth of the USAR system was related to uh, uh, earthquake response, particularly related to large uh, structural uh, 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 things like uh, bridges and, and tall buildings that often exceeded the capabilities of local responders. So special skill sets, special tools, special training, that sort of stuff focused uh, particularly on uh, attempts to locate and uh, extricate people from those uh, environments. Well, one of these, I've been watching all these disaster shows lately, don't ask me why, but in one of them they showed the Northridge earthquake, which in fact I was very involved with working with Red Cross in, in Northridge, and, and I recalled the three-story apartment complex that became two, <laughs> because the whole lower floor got crushed. Do you remember anything about that, Joe? I don't know if you were on that one. But oh, yeah. I absolutely remember that. I have it in ah. my slide presentations. Aha, there you go. So I mean, I guess it was a function of- Bridge apartments. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it was a function of having to dig through the floor of the second level to get to the people. And there were survivors down there that I guess just managed to find void spaces or closets or I don't know what, what kind of thing saved them. Well, we had, there actually was a, a prolonged rescue there. It's a great story. Um, the, the crew uh, was on the second floor of the building, which was now, you know, four feet off the ground because it collapsed onto the first floor. Uh, they located a man who was still in his bed, which was on the first floor, which was mostly garage space, parking spaces, but some apartments, you know, had a, had a bedroom, had, had rooms on the, the first floor. And so, uh, the, the approach was to cut through the floor into uh, the space, you know, below, they ended up actually um, cutting into the top of the clothes closet in the room, which was absolutely packed full of clothing and then compressed by a building. So you can imagine trying to cut through um multiple layers of cloth that are being compressed by a building uh, before they could get ultimately into this build, in, into that space. Uh, the man that was in there had a beam that was across both lower legs in the bed. 
from the collapse of the structure. They managed to finally get him freed from that. Uh, and then he had to go up through a very small hole um, in the top of that closet, you know, sort of two by two uh, feet. Uh, but this guy weighed over 300 pounds. So a huge process to extricate that man out of that situation probably took 25 people and many hours of work uh, to perform that, uh, that singular rescue on that guy. I imagine he went on a diet shortly after that. Um, <laughs> I certainly would. So people live near the ocean, and you you know you think of the many stories we've heard in Japan and Indonesia and other places. There's going to be a tsunami. Is that mostly due to earthquakes out in the ocean or closer? Uh, usually it's because of a major change in the ocean floor. So if you can imagine... Um, a, uh, you know, somewhere deep in the ocean, suddenly part of the floor of the ocean, you know, drops 20 feet or rises 20 feet, uh, that, that displaces a lot of water, uh, which of course is, you know, pushed out through the rest of the ocean and, uh, is not a big deal when you're in 2000 feet of water, but as it nears the shoreline, of course, that, that 20-foot wall of water comes up to the surface and uh, does tremendous damage as it rolls into uh, into the shoreline. Well, and it's going to roll people into objects and buildings and debris. So somebody might think, well, I'll just dive under it. Well, then you have the risk of running into underwater structures or being knocked unconscious by something or sustaining fatal blows. Um, then there's the issue of falling structures and all that swirling debris that can get crushed, crush injuries, fractures, open and closed wounds, all kinds of things like that. Head injury. What do you think about that, Joe? <laughs> Did I capture them all? Oh, yeah, you're you're 100% correct. You know, water is incredibly heavy. And a, uh, you know, a 20 foot wall of water coming at you can quite easily take your house and move it a few blocks away. Uh, so the idea that you're going to dive into that and swim through it is, you know, kind of absurd. Um, you're going to be crushed by the, the weight of that water. Uh, and, and all the things you talked about are definitely going to happen. You're going to be thrown a long distance. You're going to be thrown against things. You're going to be simply crushed by the weight of the water. I mean, you know, you go from the surface to 30 or 40 feet underwater, that's a tremendous pressure differential that, you know, most you typical swimmers don't ever dive that deep without, you know, gear and oxygen and all that sort of stuff. The idea that you're going to do that in a tsunami is, uh, I think, sort of equally unlikely. Well, I would think even scuba divers or professional divers uh, would have a hard time in that respect, right? Yeah, no question about it. I mean, it, it, it's not likely to be a highly survivable event, is my point. Well, and it's it's easy to imagine that the, the biggest issue is drowning. People just can't get out of the water. But so they do. They survived the earthquake, they survived the tsunami. 
Well, now you've got an environment that's probably hot. They have insect exposure from bodies, other environmental hazards. Can you touch on that? Yeah, just, you know, the aftermath of that uh, it is uh, lots of contamination. You know, it, it, it water and, and earthquakes are pretty indiscriminate. So, uh, you know, they're going to rupture petroleum pipelines and they're going to stir up sewage and, and break sewage lines. And uh, they're going to knock all the toxins at the uh, local uh, uh, yard and garden store, you know, out and either into the water table or you know, scattered all over the area there. Uh, and then uh, they're going to take all those people and mix them all into all of that. So in addition to the obvious physical injuries that could occur there, your your exposure to uh, toxins um, and irritants of all sorts, uh, you know, chemical exposures, uh, obviously the, the wild animals in the area get uh, knocked out of their homes just like you've been, so you're you're suddenly face to face with an animal that you wouldn't expect to see. Um, there are live wires down, electrical hazards, um, and you know if you have have or sustain an injury in one of those kind of conditions, and the chances of complications from infection, et cetera, are greatly enhanced. Uh, as well as the fact that the healthcare infrastructure is greatly diminished. So it's sort of getting you from both sides there where uh, there's a real challenge to be able to, uh, one, protect yourself, and two, if something does happen to you, to yourself, to be able to get taken care of in the same manner you would prior to the event. Absolutely. Thoughts, Jamie? Well, so often in any disaster situation, whether it's the tornadoes we've seen across the, the U.S. south and central parts of the southern U.S. Uh, recently, uh, they they cause a, a, an aftermath of hazards that are often separate to and no less dangerous than the initial short-lived emergency of the, the tornado itself or the earthquake or the tsunami. And these hazards present unique challenges to the responders themselves and individuals that are acting in that response mode right after disaster passes through. Um, because, you know, the first responders aren't the first people on the scene. It's the neighbors and the people involved in the disaster itself that are the initial responders in these situations. Joe, thoughts on that? Well, I think he's exactly right. You know, it's uh, part of the challenge with uh, with disaster response is you've got to protect yourself uh, as best you can, and, and at the same time um, respond urgently to a situation where there are many life threats and lots of stuff going on, and and time is of the essence. So. It's a it's an interesting uh, balancing act to be able to make that response and make a difference out there, but to do so without putting yourself in uh, in excessive harm's way anyway. Yeah, and then there's the issue of them getting to the injured people. Like in a tornado, there's going to be a lot of wires down. There's going to be a lot of debris in the road and that kind of thing. Plus, you know, you got to wonder, are the first responders psychologically ready 
for something of this magnitude. They're used to their day-to-day regime of moving grandma from the hospital to the console, perhaps, and have never dealt with something like this. So I know that's kind of an individual thing, but yeah, that's got to be tough on them. Um, I read somewhere, Joe, where it said decaying bodies create very little risk of major disease outbreaks. Is that true? Yeah, generally that is true. Uh, the uh, that's always been concerning, of course, because you know there's a putrefaction process of, of you know the tissue beginning to uh, degrade, and that that attracts animals and insects and all kinds of stuff. But honestly, uh, in in general, they're they're not a tremendous infectious disease risk. They uh, they may be a source of interest to an animal population that contains insects, ticks or fleas or whatever that that may you know bite the animal, have some sort of disease and then bite the people in the area. but that's really not directly related to human remains. That's just simply related to lots of available food sources for animals that often carry and harbor diseases. Boy. Bad enough. So what kind of long-term injuries or illnesses would we expect to see after a tsunami? Well, uh, uh, apart from the, the obvious stuff, you know, traumatic injuries, burn injuries, electrical injuries, all those sort of things, um, it, it comes down to um, what else you may have been exposed to and how... Um, capable the healthcare system may have been after you sustained some sort of injury, um, thinking in terms of, uh, you know, you, you got a cut on your arm, it got infected because you were in nasty water for, you know, some time trying to get yourself out of that situation. And then, uh, you know, ultimately the, the infectious process is so aggressive that you end up losing the arm uh, obviously that's a, that's a permanent, <laughs> uh, issue related to exposure there. But I think for a lot of folks, just as we ultimately saw after nine 11, um, the inhalation of toxins, the, uh, 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 exposure through the skin, potentially in, uh, water, uh, that sort of stuff that can lead to lots of different uh, disease processes, many of which take years to manifest themselves. So, um, you know, as I said earlier, we we see that all the time and uh, are still seeing that in the, the guys that responded to 9-11 uh, and uh, them ultimately losing their lives in many cases um, due to their exposures to many unknown toxins during uh, rescue efforts there. Yep, been there, done that. Um, Jamie, question? Yeah, Joe, I'm curious um, on the mental health side of things um, after the passing of a disaster situation in a community. Has any research or studies been done on the the ability and resilience of that community after the fact to um, ongoing infection compared to communities that don't have uh, 
a disaster pass through. I'm just curious if if the mental health has any effect on the immune response to you know things that come along after such events. Uh, that, that's a pretty hard thing to tease out in, uh, in you know in a population size research project. Um, there, there are certainly, uh, and we didn't even talk about this earlier, right? When Sam asked about long term injuries, uh, the psychological wounds are often hard to see, hard to diagnose, and and poorly and ineffectively treated in many cases. Um, I do think, at least in responders. Um, who tend to have a more um, structured, pre-planned support infrastructure, particularly for mental health. Um, We've seen an improvement in um, those resources being utilized and uh, more proactively and all that sort of stuff. Now, whether or not that's made a big difference in the um, the morbidity and mortality of mental illness after uh, disaster response is a little bit harder to tell. Um, but I, I do think we at least recognize it better than we used to. And we have more resources available if we can just connect the people to the resources. And often that's the challenge. Yeah, I'd love to see more documentation and studies on first responders after this. But, you know, a lot of them run around with perhaps years of close to PTSD or PTSD, and now you load something like this up on them. Um, that can't be helpful. But, Jamie, I, I love these clinical episodes with Joe because he knows everything. And, you know, it's always enlightening, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we really appreciate all of Joe's expertise, and it's one of the reasons we're happy to be associated with Joe and Paragon Medical Education Group because of the just reams of information we can gather from a simple topic of let's talk about disasters like earthquakes and tsunamis and the injuries we can be expecting to see there. Uh, and it, you know, I often look at that topic and go, well, I don't know, we're going to have a whole half hour of that. Well, we're at the half hour mark now and we still aren't done. So, <laughs> uh, Joe, you know, when people come to you at Paragon and talk to you about uh, uh, how to structure a, a class for a given topic, um, how much time do you spend with them and what are what are some of the things that you like them to ask you? Well, uh, we, we like to try to touch on all the aspects of it, uh, that many of which people don't think much about. Usually it's uh, we want to learn some cool medical procedures and, you know, how to approach things and that sort of stuff. But uh, it, it's also about the planning. It's, it's about the, uh, the safety net that you have in place and how are you screening people when they get back and how long do you follow them and what do you do if, if you, somebody gets hurt and you have to send them home and what what's the impact on everybody if something really bad happens or if a lot of people come home and get sick, uh, whether that's physically ill or just, uh, you know, mental stresses. So it, it's trying to talk through the whole thing so that we can offer as holistic an experience as possible and give people as much experience 
uh, without having ever done much in the way of disaster response. Where's the best place for people to reach out to you? How can they get in touch with Paragon to find out how they can, you know, get you to explain some of that to them? Sure. We're, we're happy to talk with folks. Uh, you can find us uh, on the web at Paragon Medical Education Group uh, or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group. Uh, they can also reach out to us through the disaster Facebook page or um, through the podcast itself. Awesome. Sam, where can folks find you? In the usual social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. In our wonderful, amazing Facebook community and disasterpodcast.com. Jamie? You can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations, and I would um, urge you to go to disasterpodcast.com and check out any of the episode pages there and subscribe to the show. You'll find links to subscribe using your favorite mobile device uh, on a variety of different apps right there below the audio player at the top of each episode page. So definitely follow through on that and and figure out how to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes because there's lots more to come, folks. I mean, we're here um, approaching the month of April, and before we know it, it's going to be hurricane season again, and that always leads to a ramp up in topics for the show. So we will be we will be here for you, bringing the latest and best information from some of the best experts in the field. And the way you get that is to get the podcast delivered to you automatically by subscribing. Uh, Sam, good episode. I'm glad we got Joe in. It's been a while since we've done a clinical episode. Yes, indeed, and that's why I thought we would be fun. Because I love listening to Jerry, so it's amazing for me. You know, like you said, Jamie, we got hurricane season coming up, and it's just one thing after another after another. So wherever you are in this world, you know what's coming, to the extent that you can, because it's weird, but be prepared. <laughs>